Welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Center for Economic and Social History. I'm your host, Ben Schneider, and this is the second half of my interview with Raya Thomas about the intergenerational social mobility of migrants to England during the 19th century. In the first part of the interview, we discuss the history of the British census, previous studies that have linked people using census data, and her novel method for linking across censuses. In this second half, Raya explains the problem of under-enumeration, the results of her migrant linking research, and some examples of families that she was able to link. So for the, the individuals that you're, uh, you're linking, you're observing their occupation as listed in the census. And this leads us onto the problem of under-enumeration. So can you explain a little bit about what, maybe it's, well, you can sort of break down the word very easily and say what it is, but how did it sort of come about and um, how do you deal with that as a problem? So under-enumeration is a very common word in social and economic history because we're so used to this phenomenon. Um, but it refers to the enumerator, who are those people who run around from the local parish and actually write this down. So under-enumeration would mean that you are, that at a large level, you're, you haven't recorded all of the information that you should. And unenumeration means we don't have any information for you at all. Um, so this sort of dispute that makes this weird word so common um, arises from a, an undisputed fact, which is that adult females are far less likely to have an occupational descriptor in the census than adult males. And there's, um, there's a spectrum of opinion among experts about why this would be. Sort of at one end of the spectrum, you have people who say that the census is inefficient or maybe even unsuitable for studying employment in the past. And sort of on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who say the census is sufficient and suitable, but it's definitely lacking in some respects. Um, but because the census is such an amazing source, it captures everybody who was living in England, as I've said before, and that's really remarkable for um, historical data. Almost everybody would say, let's use it anyway. <laughs> um, so the census is undeniably, regardless of which camp you sort of fall in, it's a really important source for studying occupation. And part of what makes this problem difficult to solve conclusively is because the, the causes of this unenumeration or underenumeration are um, possibly many and most likely sort of compound. So, for example, there's, um, there's a real decline in female labor force participation. Almost everyone would agree it's over the period that you're looking at. Over the at period that we're looking at, century, yeah. women sort of participated less and less in the official labor force. Most people, regardless of where you are on the spectrum, would agree that was probably happening. And then there's a real change in sort of cultural norms about the male breadwinner family in Victorian England around this time. We know that that's happening, but not everyone agrees exactly how it happened, if it affected mostly sort of intellectual people and maybe it didn't really affect the working classes as much. There's a real problem of patriarchal gender bias because the census was devised by men, it was carried out by men, and then it was tabulated by men. So undoubtedly there's some of that going on, and pretty much everyone would say there's some of that going on. And then as we've already talked about as well, there's a real change in the intent of the census in capturing occupational data. So there's sort of a legitimate variance in, in writing down occupations where writing down an occupation in 1851 probably meant something different than writing down an occupation in 1901. So all of those things kind of work together to make deciding as a discipline what we think of the unenumeration problem or the under-enumeration problem really complex. All right, so that's a, that's a good explanation of you know, a lot of the causes of 
unenumeration, which I had, had never heard of before this, um, and underenumeration, um, and what, so what it is and, and where it comes from. So what's, what's your approach for, for dealing with this? Because, you know, one of the big contributions to your thesis is including the half the population that's been left out of the linkage studies. So if there is a problem of underenumeration or unenumeration for those folks, then dealing with that is going to be an important, uh, an important aspect. Yeah, this presents a lot of challenges, not only because so many migrants were women, the majority of migrants were women, but because I'm interested in intergenerational outcomes. I'm also by default interested in children and sort of the age of children starting work and their socioeconomic experience is a really important part of this story. So it's uh, it's quite, yeah, it's quite severe. So the first thing I had to do was think about, okay, how does this affect my research? but also to, to really look at what are the strengths of the data I have and how can I use those strengths to um, solve this problem. Sometimes there aren't sufficient strengths in the data to overcome a problem, but fortunately I, I didn't find that to be the case. In the cohort I developed for this study, I have um, 300,000 people who I observed more than once. So there's about 600,000 observations of these 300,000 people. But because I'm I'm really keen to make use of the really rich information in the census. I also have another 300,000 observations for co-resident family members, people who don't necessarily qualify as migrants or children of migrants. So, for example, I might want to know, okay, you're a grandchild of a migrant. Did you marry someone who was born in England? What was the person you married doing? That sort of thing. So, in all, I have about 900,000 observations I'm using um, in this cohort to to do my long-run analysis. And almost half of them had missing occupational codes. Now, those occupational codes are what's called HISCO codes. And those were developed in the 1950s and applied to the data of the census directly, but they weren't necessarily, they're sort of after the fact analysis. So I think one of sort of the first hurdle in thinking about underenumeration is acknowledging that the HISCO codes, which social and economic historians tend to use much more often than they use the actual text from the census, sort of compounds the issue of underenumeration. So of the observations that I'm using um, that had missing HISCO codes, half of them still had occupational information in the census, but the HISCO coding from the 1950s doesn't pick up on it. Um, So I'm left with really just like about 250,000 who have genuinely blank information on the original census page. So basically in the occupation field there, the census enumerator didn't write anything. Now, sometimes the census enumerator made a little tick or some sort of weird gesture, and we can talk about whether that means you should maybe read the information from the line above down onto this observation, but that's maybe a tangent we don't need to go down. So I'm left still with 250 missing observations. So what is really amazing about the census data is that it's complete. Even if you have missing fields here and there, by missing, I mean blank. It's not like they're, they're missing, we don't know what happened to them, they're just blank. There's lots of ways you can move this data around to look at it through different analytical lenses to sort of recover what the data does say. Um, So the approach that I took, instead of trying to wade into this vast debate about whether or not we can tell what's happening or where this bias comes from, how much of it is bias and how much of it is real, is I just 
confine myself to looking at the census data I have, to looking at the patterns that I saw inside the census data, to see where I could be certain that I was working with bias instead of with uh, real questions about whether or not this person was working. So for example, one of the clearest trends in the data is the trend between someone who is married, specifically a woman who's married, and a woman who is unmarried. Uh, for example, like a 32-year-old female's occupation was four times more likely to be noted by the enumerator if her father was a clerk than if she was married to a clerk. And this is pretty consistent across all occupational groups. So like a 20-year-old female was twice as likely to be described by the enumerator if her father was a day laborer than if her husband was a day laborer. Or for example, if, like if a 27-year-old woman was a was a baker herself, or if the head, if the man at the head of the household was her father rather than her husband. So one of the ways I sort of decided to look at these blank lines was by looking at age and sort of social grouping. Across all of my data, I looked at sort of women, say by at age 27, how many of them are working, how many of them aren't working. And I broke that down even further into different occupational classifications based on what I see your whole household doing in the census. So where the data is really clear, for example, that 27-year-old females who were, say, the oldest daughter or even the youngest daughter were um, disproportionately likely to be working, I'm going to infer that you're probably likely to be working regardless of whether or not you're married. Now, the term working here is tricky. <laughs> and probably something else I should have put in my causes spiel is a definitional one, not only at the time, but today. And economic and social historians still today go rounds about what it means to work, and I'm putting these in air quotes that you can't see, who's in the labor force, all of these kinds of things. So Labor force is also in air quotes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So when I say working... What I mean is engaged in labor which sustains the household. And this is a really important delineation. So that's sorry, that's not necessarily a market-facing Exactly. Right. Okay. Although, again, there we can have sort of what is market-facing. Because labor which sustains a household, by default, has some sort of remunerative value. Mm. Even if you're not receiving remuneration for it, there's still a real value in the sorry. marketplace. Yeah, that's what I meant. But that's no, a good, this that's is an example, good. dear yeah, listener, yeah. of why we go rounds <laughs> and rounds about this. Is because it's, um, it's tricky. So, And this is a great example of why I was kind of keen to sidestep all of this. And here I'll circle back to my measure of socioeconomic status, this prestige measure I'm using. I don't have to figure out whether a woman was earning a wage or not. I don't have to figure out whether she was employed full-time or part-time because regardless of any of that, you still, as a human, you experience a socioeconomic status. And as a historian doing this type of work, what I'm really interested in is what was your socioeconomic status. So when I say I look across, if I'm, well, for example, I'm 34 and I'm married, so I was highly unlikely to be occupationally described in the census. But if I look across, so say my husband works in IT, and he's like an IT manager. So if, in the 18th, 19th century, we'd say he was a telegrapher or something like that? Yeah, maybe? why not? Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Um, so if I look across the, the census at all 34-year-old women, regardless of whether they're married or not, 
where the household head was a telegrapher. Yeah. I like that word. <laughs> and I see that um, especially that marital marker makes me much less likely to be enumerated, whereas um, 34-year-old women whose fathers were telegraphers had a very clear socioeconomic status. And usually what I see in the census data is that this is especially because we're using, again, the socioeconomic status marker and not necessarily wages or hourly employment, I can see that those daughters had a very clear and uniform socioeconomic status. I'm then going to give the wife, me, Mm -hmm. a socioeconomic status that's whatever I observe for those people. And the additional variable I bring to bear here is the structure of the household, which also does have something to do with the strength of the assumption that you can make. So, for example, I will count the number of other dependents in the household, and if there's a meaningful difference, that factors into what score I give you. There are definitely some cases in which I, I can't make a very clear assumption because the data is not necessarily clear, and there I will just leave it blank. But where it's very clear that there's sort of systematic bias, especially about married women, I don't have any compunction at all, about associating them with a socioeconomic score that I observed for other women in households very much like yours, which includes household composition and the labor force present in the other observations. Um, And that's sort of how I proceed. So basically, um, there's a slightly different procedure for children, very young labor, where I draw on um, the really robust work of some other scholars, like Jane Humphreys in particular, to sort of decide whether or not a child was working and what their socioeconomic status was likely to be. I, in the end, I ended up with about 40% of all children between 9 and a half and 12 with some sort of socioeconomic status. Again, this doesn't mean they were earning a full wage, that they worked full time, but I can infer what their status was, not only from the really great census data we have, but also from the really good work of other economic historians who have looked at other sources to make very strong claims about what that would have been. And for women, I recoded about 140,000 observations with a socioeconomic score that wasn't indicated by the the HISCO coding, at least. About 20% of them had originally been coded to an occupation by the original census enumerators, so that's not quite a leap, quite not quite so much of a leap for most of them. But basically, once I've done this, I end up with a socioeconomic status variable, which quite evenly balanced between males and females. Right. So that's, that's, uh, that takes us towards um, maybe the last kind of technical point, uh, which is linking family members. So how, how does that work? Because obviously intergenerational mobility means you need to know who's the child of whom, who's the parents of whom. So could you give us a little bit of, uh, of an explanation of how, how you link those people? Yes. I was able to match, so there's about 900,000 foreign-born people in 1851. And what I did is I created those identifiers that we already talked about, and I searched for all of them in 1861, which is the next census year. I found 114,000 of them, right? So this is about 16%, something like that, which isn't great. But, But bear in mind, we expect a lot of these people didn't necessarily stay in England, especially if you were born outside of England, we're not necessarily going to assume that you were a permanent resident. Um, and this is still pretty comparable with the more standard nominal linking techniques that I've, I've told you about. So, for example, in 1861, there were 58,000 females and 56,000 males. Their average age was about 27. 
I also linked them to 74,000 female and 60,000 male spouses and children in the 1861 census. So what the census also tells us is who was related to who in a household. It usually tells us directly, but often we can infer it. And it's very much just like clear best practice about how you infer family structure. Um, I also, before I moved on from 1861, I add to their individual information anything I can infer from people who aren't directly related to them in the household, just as additional items further down the road that I can use in my analysis later. So then I look for the migrants and their children in the 1881 census, and I find 21% of the women and 18% of the men. And I did the same thing. I linked them to 33,000 female and 24 male spouses and children. And by 1881, I have about 36,000 family groups that I'm following uh, through time. And again, this, um, this linkage rate is getting better and better with time. So basically what's happening here is people who put down long-term roots, I'm better able to find in, in later censuses. Um, then I look for migrants and their children and any grandchildren, which I have at this point in the 1891 census, and I find 34% of females and 31% of males. I add another 18,000 females, but only 9,000 males. And I continue to link them forward. In 1901, I find 9,000 and 7,000. And in 1891, we have 21,000 family groups still running through. In 1901, I end up with 13,000 family groups. Um, so this obviously gives me a lot of observations for the same people over time. And it gives me a maximum amount of 13,000 family groups who I see in every single year of the census, which is um, quite a lot to be going on with. Yeah, 13,000 family groups over 50 years yeah. with 19th century data is, yeah, that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty big chart. And that's just taking people who's, who, who had a family member who had migrated to England before 1851. Yes, uh, who were born in England. So there's quite a lot of reasons why. Sorry, so this, family member migrates to England before 1851, and then there are children who are born in England. Yes. Sorry, I should have. No, yes, thank you for pointing that out. Because quite often there are siblings who were born in the home country as well, but I haven't included them in my analysis here because I'm looking at that three-generation mm -hmm. effect. But that's really inter interesting information to have. But I don't, I haven't compared them in this study, which I would like to do in future because that's an interesting counter story. This is the, if you will, the results part of the, the podcast. So what are, what are some of the outcomes that you observe um, looking at these people over time? So I think there's um, sort of two differentiations I'd like to make. I'd like to talk about gender because that's really exciting because we haven't had longitudinal female data before. Um, but I, I can also sort of talk about intergenerational transmission, which is that really long-run story. And so what we see for men and women is slightly different. It's not fundamentally different, but it is, it is different. What we find is that um, male migrants tended to fall toward the middle part, like the very average part of socioeconomic status in the second generation. This sort of means that the sons of migrants didn't retain the status of their fathers very well in the majority. But in the third generation, you sort of see a flattening out of the distribution of status, which means that there's sort of a div real diversity of outcomes for that third generation. And when I'm talking about these outcomes, I should just stipulate I'm only looking at individuals who I have information on every generation 
and I have at least three observations for you. And I'm judging your outcome based on the maximum socioeconomic score I have for you. Because obviously these usually do go up and down over time. So you're looking at, yeah, so the maximum, so you assume they're in a part of the life cycle where they've achieved for the period that you can link for them their highest social status occupation. You've linked them through three different censuses and you have their parents and grandparents also. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so even when we look at the maximum observation for the grandparent, the maximum observation for the parent, and the maximum observation for the son, this is sort of what we see, that um, that the first generation tended to be slightly higher up the social scale than we would expect for the native-born population. So that's for men or women or both? For both. For both, okay. Um, for men, what we see, for men specifically, what we see in the second generation, so their sons we see they tend to gravitate toward the very average part of the socioeconomic scale. And this is different than the story for daughters. And daughters tended to stay much further up the social scale than we would expect for native-born daughters. And again, even though I haven't linked the native-born over long periods of time, we just remember that this socioeconomic measure I'm using has been calculated for the native-born population and balanced for the native-born population. So even though I don't have data myself on the native-born, I'm putting these migrants on a native-born scale and comparing what I see to what we know about the general population. So in the second generation, sons fell further down the scale than they experienced downward social mobility, whereas um, daughters did not. Or if they did, it was to a much, uh, uh, much lesser extent. Um, in the third generation, so the grandchildren of migrants, generally what we see is um, for males a bit of a flattening out. So you do see some recovery of status in the third generation never really up into the very higher echelons, the very extremes of high social prestige, but sort of what you might think of as being sort of upper middle class positions. We see a, a fairly marked recovery for the grandsons of migrants into like the upper middle class. Um, and for women, well, we continue to see that they stay up in this higher end, even though, especially at the very high extreme of social prestige, um, there is still a very rapid fall off. So generally when I'm talking about this very high social prestige, there's sort of a little bubble at the top, much as we might think there is in our society today. There's sort of like a very bubble of extremely elite at the top where the distribution of status arcs quite neatly over that median value of 50, and then it gets quite narrow, quite stretched out, and at the very top there's like a clump of people. So both male and female migrants who are at that very top clump um, experienced a really striking down, downward run because obviously they have further to fall, but it's not as if they're falling um, you know, within a standard deviation of where we'd expect them. No, they're going all the way down to the median some very often. Mm -hmm. And this is much stronger for the granddaughters of female migrants than it is for the grandsons or granddaughters of male migrants. Right, interesting. Okay, so clearly we've been missing a lot by not linking... Half, more than half the population, especially yeah. when you're talking about migrants. So the, the other interesting part, you're right, um, is the intergenerational transmission where you actually look sort of mathematically at how much of an individual, like how much of a grandchild's status is predicted by the status and the same factors of their parents and grandparents. And there you see very strikingly that sort of this patrilineal model 
which is where if you only look at fathers and sons or grandfathers and grandsons, you're going to see a very different method and predictiveness of those factors than if you also look at not just matrilineal, which would just be grandmothers and daughters and granddaughters. So what we see is for men, there's much higher transmission. That means your father and your grandfather's status is much more determinant over your own social status than your mother's status is or your grandmother's status is. And in each generation, the gender effect has sort of a, a pass-along effect that changes how much individual mobility you might have had in terms of your social status. Partially, I think this is due to the fact that males and females clearly did have a different occupational experience. And the, the social proximity variable we're using is actually calculated separately for men and for women to take a large proportion of that into account. But even when we allowed that men and women had a different social structure based on their relative occupations, there's still a very real sense that a lot of uh, mobility for females was associated with um, making great jumps in occupational status, that perhaps we would associate that with marriage. Perhaps that's a bit endemic in the fact that women did migrate more. And we know from the other literatures on socioeconomic mobility that where you have greater residential mobility, you also have greater socioeconomic mobility. And one of the most striking things about this cohort of 288,000 people is the rate of continual movement is really high. So for example, out of the people I observe at least three times, only 2% remain in the same parish from one census observation to the next. Now, parishes are really small, right? So this is not necessarily a big move at all. It just means you're, you're sort of changing your household location. Um, but women are always more likely to move than men. Basically, my estimate, is, which is still early, and I need to unpack this a little bit more, but I think as few as 20% of females and 40% of males stayed in the same county between census observations with as many of, as half of women and 30% of men moving county at least twice. And that if we think about the historical context and what as social historians we know about this period of time, that maybe doesn't surprise us. But when we think about some of the other assumptions we make about intergenerational mobility, I think that is really significant and bears a lot of thought. And when, so if we consider that women are much more likely to continue moving, than men, perhaps this socioeconomic mobility is related to that as well. There's clearly a lot to get into. You've suggested some explanations in terms of causality, but there's you've, you've done a lot of work to lay uh, the groundwork in terms of the description of what was happening, and then that can be built on in terms of the in terms of the causal explanations. So we've spent most of most of the podcast talking about people in a very kind of aggregated way. And if there are any social historians listening, they'll probably be wondering, where are the human beings, right? So these are economic historians, and I know I'm guilty of this too, who are kind of aggregating. We're talking about, you know, big, big picture stuff. Can you give us some examples of the individual families that you've been able to link and, and you know, what their, what their life experiences were to give a human element and, and some sort of color to, uh, to this, the aggregation across, across this 50-year period? So several examples sort of popped to my mind, although the great danger of doing this project, I realized, is because you're compiling nothing but family histories in this cohort. So 
So um, it's very easy to get distracted just sitting there staring at your data tables and marveling at what happened to these families over time. Uh, the first one that pops to mind sort of relates to what we were just talking about, about the um, sort of how the really social elite might have experienced this really stunning socioeconomic downgrading. Uh, and there was a woman named Gertrude who had been born in Bombay, who, who we would probably assume was the daughter of some sort of um, civil servant there who moved back um, to England prior to 1851. And over time, we're able to link her to her daughters of various ages. She doesn't have any sons that we ever see with her in the census. Um, and in the census, her occupation is given as an East Indian annuitant, which is pretty common and just means she was sort of living off her own, living off her own means. But her three daughters' fates are, are really quite different socioeconomically. So one daughter stayed with her mother throughout four observations and therefore retained her status. They were both, we would consider them both annuitants. And we see this daughter one further time after Gertrude has died, and she's still listed as an annuitant, and to the best of my knowledge, she never married. Um, another daughter, the second daughter, married a clergyman, and that still is associated with a relatively prestigious score. But the third daughter married an innkeeper, which is much further down the socioeconomic ladder. And when we think about what we know about inheritance and different sibling effects within family cohorts, I think sort of this really striking finding about really elite migrants just experiencing what looks like empirically catastrophic social loss over time has to do not maybe not so much with the fact that these are migrants or there's something strange happening, but more about this invisible story that we know is there in terms of family inheritance where the firstborn tend to have the most advantaged outcome, but the second, third, fourthborn sort of have to fend for themselves. And when we look at family outcomes more holistically and don't just focus on sort of the more elite members of the household, we see we would probably see much more of this picture much more commonly in, um, in other studies of status or maybe even more qualitative studies of status. Another um, story which comes to mind is sort of the stock one I always use when I'm explaining how network persistence linkage works. So there's two sisters, Agnes and Annie, and they're living with their mother and father in 1861. And I'm able to find them in 1881, um, even though both of their individual information has changed because they're living together, or at least one of them is visiting the other one. So in the case of Annie, um, she has married and her last name is now different. And that's why I didn't find her, you wouldn't find her in if you just tried to match her directly. So she's married and her last name has changed and she's got children. And Agnes hasn't married, so her last name is the same, but her birth year is off by one or two digits. But because they're together in the census, and because there is no stronger match for either of them anywhere else, which you'd imagine with, with those names and those identifying characteristics, that's still a really strong match. I'm able to trace them in that year not just the one who married, where the algorithm is designed to be able to find her, but the one whose information was incorrect, and I wouldn't have found her on her own either. And I'm able to then go on and follow them um, throughout time. One of them never marries, and the other one is widowed in the next census year. It's difficult to say how unusual those people were, and I think that's one of the interesting things we could do with more sort of social persistence linkage techniques is um, how unusual 
was it for women to marry five or six times? Because I often see women whose surname changes, even though when I unpack the data, it's very obviously the same person. Um, I think information like this, as well as considering that high relocation rate, which often makes it really difficult for historians to see what's happening in terms of migration, it would be really exciting to get a bit more into this in future. But I think the sort of the family that I have unpicked and I used in my thesis, which is a bit more representative, is um, the story of the Balmer family. He was born in Scotland and he moved south to Northumberland by 1851, where he's working in the mine. Um, he marries a local girl named Margaret. Um, and before his death, about 40 years later, they have at least eight children, four boys and four girls. By 1861, there's seven of them, and by 1871, there's nine of them. One of the sons becomes a plasterer's laborer, uh, while the other two work at the mine, where their father is now an overseer. Sometime between 1871 and 1881, the family moves hundreds of miles to Bury, where at least six of them took up work in Lancashire's textile industry. So they move out of mining and into textiles. Um, the father is now 60. He's a laborer in a cotton mill along with one of his sons. The guy who had been a plasterer's laborer is now a warper, and the, one of the daughters is a felt hat trimmer, and the other is a winder. But interestingly, the oldest daughter, um, who's 22, has become a schoolmistress, which on the socioeconomic ladder of female prestige is pretty much as high as you get. It's sort of like becoming a doctor. Um, so only one of the sons continued to live at th that address in Northumberland, um, and he now heads his own household where they have nine people, um, and includes his local-born wife, Jane. So these guys are marrying local women. Um, in 1881, only his occupation is enumerated, but all five of his sons would eventually end up in the mines and his two daughters in domestic service. By 1891, they split again. Up in Northumberland, uh, the grandson is a coal hewer, and he lives in a different part of town with another local-born Margaret and a young daughter. Down in Bury, the guy who had been a plasterer's laborer and is now a warper had moved out into the suburbs and married a local-born girl named Betsy, with who um, they raised two girls, both of which joined their father in working in the mills by 1901. When the original migrant dies, his wife sort of seems to become the matriarch, and she continues to live at that same address in York Street, which includes one of the sons, who's now changed his occupation again and is a van man. And um, her youngest daughter, Susanna, her young family um, is comprised of one little girl. Susanna is nevertheless still a winder, and her husband, a guy named Chambers, was an overlooker in a cotton mill, and he was interestingly also born in Scotland. So this is like complex, and it's a little boring. I'm sorry, listener. But we know it's not really fascinating or exceptional, but this is the type of family unit we're able to compile over time. We're able to follow them when they move, and especially because they stay together in different permutations, you can much more confidently match them, even when their vocations are changing like crazy. But sort of the really interesting question for me as a historian is, given all this upheaval, they're changing addresses, they're changing countries, they're changing industrial sectors, they're changing trades. How much could, for example, that their father had been from Scotland, 
how much could that really have mattered, <laughs> you know? But we do find surprisingly really persistent effects, even for the national origin of the original migrant. Even when you take all of that other stuff into consideration, there's something about even national origin that really persists into that third generation. And that is incredibly surprising to me. And I really look forward to unpicking in much more historical detail why that might be. Right. So everything we've talked about so far has been your master's thesis, which the listeners will be able to tell is incredibly impressive and will be able, they will be able to read that soon. I think you said mm-hmm. you're going to, it will be on the Oxford Research Archive. Um, and there should be a link to that in the show notes. But maybe we'll just briefly, towards the end, uh, turn to the research you're doing now. So can you give us a sense of how you're, you're building on, on this, the work that we've already talked about, um, and, and the directions that you're going in now? Yes, so this was a fun... What basically happened with my master's thesis is I didn't realize how many problems would still need to be solved. So I got a little distracted working on an algorithm and trying to figure out the under-enumeration problem, which... Uh, took a while. Um, it was still a really great experience. But as I don't have an economics background, I, I have a history background. And what I really find tantalizing, like really I'm just kind of frustrated because I've come up with sort of these empirical measurements of intergenerational outcome, but I didn't have time to sort of unpack that what that really would have meant in the historical context to describe the conditions under which these people might have moved in the first place and the conditions they experienced where they went. I haven't really had time to, to build a cohort, basically a control group of people whose grandparents were born in England, and to compare these migrant grandchildren to the grandchildren of the, of the local born to see really what might be different about migrants. What all I can do with my master's thesis is to compare how different migrants are different. You know, like the descendants of the Scotland born had less mobility generally than the the grandchildren of the Irish-born, especially Irish women, but I can't really tell you, compared to the local population, how they might have done. And the other bit that you would also really want to know is, for example, if the Scottish had less socioeconomic mobility in England, is there something about the sending context that's really important? So you'd really sort of want to know what was happening in Scotland for the grandchildren of people maybe who stayed in Scotland. So what I'm hoping to do for my um, doctoral research is to sort of expand the scope of this analysis. So I'd like to replicate this process for Scotland and for Ireland and for Wales. I've got some locations on the European continent that I think are really promising, as well as some locations further afield um, to be able to compare some of these groups to the people who remained behind. Um, but I think what's most important is to sort of move past this empirical estimation of socioeconomic status and say something meaningful about living conditions and experience, because that's really what we're all interested, I think, um, in. Something I'm really uh, excited to get into, and I look forward to getting a lot of feedback from my peers and supervisors on, is thinking about the ways in which a social proximity estimate which basically calculates from the population, as we've said, who's basically socially equivalent to you, who you're likely to marry, who your children are likely to be, to what extent we can exploit that fact to describe a standard of living that gets beyond the real value that we observe for you as an individual and describes what you might have perceived to be your opportunities. If you're a cotton winder, we might know what is, the, what is the life expectancy for a cotton winder in Lancashire at this time? We might have some estimate of 
what sort of nutritional subsistence basket you might have been able to afford as a wonder. But those are sort of very direct measurements of you as sort of this idea of an isolated individual. But as we all know, just from our human experience, your individual experience is not really described by only your experience. It's described by the people you live with whose fate you more or less share. And something we've really struggled with in the socioeconomic literature is to, how to sort of incorporate Sen's idea about the standard of living, which encompasses not just a functioning, which is what you literally do, but your capacity, what might have been, especially in the historical past, your ability to choose or your ability to change. So what I hope to do is to sort of build these other data sets for other places, but also to use social proximity statistics and to tie them into socioeconomic markers for each place along the scale and to be able to describe if people from Scotland tended to fall at this particular place in the socioeconomic scale, what did that really mean? Did they exchange um, perhaps higher enfranchisement in Scotland for lower enfranchisement, even though they were maybe earning more, to sort of be able to describe that socioeconomic experience, I think is really exciting. And it's really, I think, the end to which a lot of this intergenerational literature turns, but especially in the context of migration, we haven't had a, an index of mobility that we can use in between places. So I'm really keen to start working on that as well. Right, well, that's a fascinating program of research to go along with uh, fascinating research you've already done. So thank you so much for, for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Center for Economic and Social History. If you've enjoyed this show, you can subscribe and find more episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We also appreciate positive ratings and reviews because they help us spread the word about the show. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter at OxfordESH or email us at oxeshpodcast at gmail.com. The podcast was produced by Panarat Anamuthana, Catherine Crossley, Meredith Paker, and Alex Wolfers. Until next time, I've been Ben Schneider. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.